1: This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is sponsored by Evo. Evo is a leading action sports retailer with stores in Seattle, Portland, and Denver, along with their website, Evo.com. Evo goes beyond just selling mountain bikes, they offer a full immersive experience blending sports, culture, and lifestyle. Keep listening for an exclusive discount code to use in store and online at Evo.com. That's EVO.com. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today we have a very special guest. Joe Breeze practically invented the mountain bike, and he's known for many firsts in our sport. In 1988, he was inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, and today he's the curator of the Marin Museum of Bicycling. Thank you for joining us today, Joe.
0: Yeah, hey, thanks for having me, Jeff.
1: So you have a really interesting background that sort of set you up to become one of the pioneers of mountain biking. Your father was a big cycling enthusiast and machinist. And even early on, you were really interested in the history of bicycles. What attracted you to bikes in those early days?
0: Oh, God, it might, it might have been my dad riding his bike to work to his, his job as an automotive <laughs> machinist uh, way back in the in the early 60s. He was a big fan of bikes. But uh yeah, you know, it was the freedom machine, as we all knew growing up as kids, and and uh, it's no different for me. I uh, just knowing kind of with my father's example, I guess I just had this broad spectrum of how big cycling was. It wasn't just me and my buddies on on the sidewalk. Uh, it was like we could get places on bikes uh, even beyond our own town, and that's what we were soon doing. My my brother Richard uh, helped out. My older brother Peter, he was riding down to down to the uh, southern california back in the back in the 60s going to school down there and it was kind of a legend in the family and then my brother richard my older brother was helping get me in that direction Our just in our neighborhood like uh my my friends uh duke mall and brian argy we would by fifth grade we were riding outside uh mill valley to to go bowling up up uh northern marin county and and uh it's just one thing led to another and uh yeah, it uh, and it and it's still today. It's uh, in more ways than I ever thought is still the freedom machine for me.
1: Right. Well, I mean that makes sense. I guess a lot of kids start out that way because they're not old enough to drive a car or own a car or anything. But it's interesting that your father was such a, a cycling enthusiast, given his occupation. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. And and I think that. Uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, he he was into automobiles, into sports cars. In fact, he raced sports cars, and that's probably why I became such a bicycle guy. Because um, he actually knew our genetic makeup, <laughs> and uh, my, of my next my biological brother Richard and I. And um, he said, "Okay." He laid down the law. He said, "Okay, you you two are not going to be driving until you're 18 years old." <laughs> and so, you know, that magic moment of 15 or 16 years old came and came and went. And when my friends were getting their car licenses, my brother and I were still riding bikes. And by the time we were 18, at the time I was 18, it's like, I don't need a license. I'm getting everywhere on a bicycle. And I wouldn't actually get my license, my, my driving license till I was 26 years old. And that was to help drive out to Crested Butte, Colorado to that Pearl Pass ride way back in 78. Wow.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. So it's, Little ironic, maybe, but uh, set me on that uh, that bicycle path for sure.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. So in the early nineteen seventies, you were racing cycle cross and biking some of the trails around Mount Tam. Was it unusual? Was that unusual to ride bikes off road back then?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a really good question. You know, today you, you go out and ride on on Mount Tam and you'll see oh so many mountain bikers right out on the trails and all. Back then zip okay i mean i knew people who did ride on the mountain occasionally but you wouldn't see them out there so few Mm -hmm. but uh yeah and i would be on cyclocross bikes riding single track on on mount tam in the early 1970s and right racing road bikes before that but off-road yeah on cyclocross in in the early 1970s Hmm. well
1: what kept other people from doing that i mean did did were they afraid the equipment wouldn't hold up or did they just sit not think it was fun
0: yeah, you know, okay, you got to remember too the landscape was very different back then. That, I mean, uh number of people riding bikes period was very low. This is like in the in the 60s anyway, it's kind of like a uh the low point uh, the nadir <laughs> of cycling in America, you know, and and uh, today we, we know a lot of our buddies are riding bikes and there's a lot of stuff going on to do with bikes now. But then uh not so much and just the idea of Riding your bike off road is like why? I mean, who, whoever, this was not something you thought about, right? <laughs> right. And and yet, when I saw, uh, you know, I was started riding those bikes in the early '70s. Uh, but uh, yeah, it just it just uh, it wasn't apparent at that time. So uh, in 1973, uh, I got my first off road, my first fat tire bike, and and that was on the. The recommendation of my friend Mark Vendetti. Mark is actually our board president at the uh, our museum today, but back then we were road racers and traveling around together, trying to search for old bikes to from the nineteenth century. You know, sophisticated machines (laughs) when bikes were king, and you know that uh, that golden age. And uh, we're out looking for these bikes, and one day struck out once again. They're hard to find. We're down at a bike shop in Santa Cruz, and Mark says, "Hey." I probably got five bucks for that old Schwinn over there, some bike that the that Alex LaRiviere at uh, Branson 40 Bikes had rescued from the, the Santa Cruz dump. <laughs> and uh, he had this lineup of old Schwins, et cetera, and had these old fat tire bikes out in back of his shop in Mark's points to one of these bikes and says, Joe, yeah, I offer the guy five bucks for this old twin. And I'm looking at Mark like, wait, why do I want that? Why do I want this old sled? And Mark says, oh, in high school, at Redwood High School, uh, I used to ride with these guys uh, from Larkspur, Corte Madera, uh, down Mount Tam, you might enjoy it. Probably the best five bucks I ever spent. <laughs> and I took that bike, I hitchhiked up Mount Tam and, and rode it down the old scenic railway, Used to be a railroad uh, up to the top of town from 1896 to 1930 or so, and and um, came down the old railroad grade. Just had a ball, yeah. No, it was fabulous. So hey, once you try it, it's a whole new thing, right? Um, and so you're talking about why didn't we do this? Well, people kind of had this in their mind. In fact, there had been many occurrences of people riding off road all across the country since those balloon tires were available in the, in the 1930s. And right. they were mostly isolated occurrences. They didn't go on to turn other people onto the sport. People were onto then, you know, something new next year or whatever. But out here in Marin, when I was riding these bikes, you know, occasionally I'd run into a, a cycling friend or a non-cycling friend, and then they'd ask me hey joe interesting looking bike so those big tires and upright handlebars and and all and and mind if i try it and i'd let them take it down the block and they'd come back and invariably they'd have a big smile on their face and say where has this bike been (laughs) they knew what they wanted they didn't know exactly what it was but after they rode this fat tire bike they knew this is what they wanted (laughs) yeah
1: yeah well, I mean, I hadn't intended to go down this path, but what were those bikes originally intended for? I mean, are these bikes that were built before roads were really um, in the condition that they're in today, or
0: not at all? Not at all. And they they were just the the ubiquitous bike of the day, pretty much designed for children because that's how far cycling had fallen in this country. It's because in eighteen ninety eight we made a, a bad mistake in the bike industry. We went with a single tube tire. Uh, where the rest of the world went on to the new double tube tire, like we have today, and you can quickly repair it, throw a new tube inside rather easily. But in America, people controlled the patent for the single tube tire, and they could, you know, they they controlled the tire.
1: So you, by single tube, do you mean basically like a tubeless tire?
0: No, and it's 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 not like a sew up. It's not like a tubular tire. It's like a glorified piece of garden hose. Huh. And to pass it, you, patch it, you got to put a plug into it and there wasn't stands or coagulant back then. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you had to wait 30 minutes for the glue to dry and people just got fed up with this. And, and, and it wasn't until the 1930s when Schwinn company out of Chicago popularized this new type of tire, which they had been using in Europe The Schwinn, Ignat Schwinn had been going back to Europe for since, well, he grew up there. Right. And he was designing high wheel bikes way back when. And, and uh, he would go see what the real bicycle culture was doing and he brought that new double <laughs> that double tube tire no longer new to America <laughs> and then it was new to America and there's been a trajectory of growth in cycling ever since the 1930s because of that double tube tire wow so anyway cycling had fallen so far that by the 1930s and 40s it was pretty much a Uh, a kid's thing Uh, that bike was designed to look like a motorcycle like maybe their father or you know other people rode and uh, it was not about the any it wasn't a sophisticated machine like the bikes from the 1890s uh and it probably weighed nor and it did weigh north of 60 pounds and imagine a kid having to schlep that thing around but but anyway that happened to have this balloon tire on it and what i mean is it's a 26 inch rolling diameter by a two and one-eighth inch carcass and that's the tire that we would find. Well, that's the tire that this bike that I bought for five bucks had on it. And that was where we started with the mountain bike, this bike designed in the 1930s.
1: Yeah, wow. That's really great background. So getting back to those first rides down Mount Tam, could you imagine at that time that mountain biking would become such a phenomenon?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, but you know, you'd see the the reaction to you know even our my non-cycling friends, our non-cycling friends, and and you could see that something was up there. This thing was hitting the nerve, and but at, at the same time, who's to know? And and I remember uh, a moment in the mid nineteen seventies. Uh, my buddy and I, Otis Guy, we're on the top of the mountain some winter and. Covered head to toe with mud, maybe, and we're <laughs> sitting down uh, at the top of Mount Tam, looking out over the San Francisco Bay Area. And I remember saying to Otis, "Wow, this sure is a lot of fun, but who else is going to want to enjoy this? <laughs> you know, and boy, wow, a lot of people, I guess, but uh, yeah, I mean." It, Yeah, it's kind of nuts. It's kind of nuts.
1: So about three years after buying that Schwinn, you started competing in the repack races, which I think a lot of people know and have heard about. And you did really well. You won 10 out of the 24 races. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I won 10 out of the 24. Uh, Gary Fisher uh, had the fastest time, however, four minutes, 22 seconds down this uh, two-mile downhill that dropped 1,300 feet. And he will always be uh 1.7 seconds ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
1: That's great. So you had a lot of experience before this uh racing road bikes and cyclocross. And so did that experience translate into sort of this downhill bike racing sport?
0: Yeah, absolutely it did. And that that's uh that was that's where we cut our teeth was riding racing riding the road bikes down Mount Tam and it's a uh, there are some wonderful roads on the mountain paved roads that um drop down either to the Pacific Ocean instance Stinson beach or back down the mill valley on the bayside and and uh yeah with my buddies uh Ronnie Schwartz and and Greg Biber, uh we were seeing how fast we could be going down the mountain and 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 uh hone that uh, skill and and uh, so when something like this repack race came along and it's like Well, sign me up. (laughs) Yeah, in fact, some of my favorite races, my road favorite road races, were ones that still go on today, like Nevada City up uh, in the Sierra Nevada had this wonderful course uh, for somebody who was a really good bike handler. uh, Bike handler, it's changed over the years. It's not quite that course, but that was my favorite uh, road race course. It was a criterium, Hmm. so you had many times to hone in uh, around those those famous uh, Nevada City corners.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. So keeping with the timeline here, Charlie Kelly asked you to build a bike frame specifically for mountain biking. So what were sort of the characteristics that you wanted that bike to have?
0: Yeah, so I I tried out many of the old sleds, you know, like the the Schwinn's and the Colsons and the uh, Hiawatha's and there were hundreds of brands. Hmm. And to test, test out their handling skills, riding down Mount Tam, and and we're up Mount Tam for that matter, but uh, along the trails, et cetera, and i arrived at um that this the schwinn that i was riding this uh, 1941 schwinn dx uh, with that geometry it was 70, 68 degree head uh 70 seat and so I, I chose that geometry as a starting point but i used modern tubing you know aircraft uh, frame tubing chromoly tubing uh, alloyed steel tubing that was much stronger, so you can make the bike lighter, make the frame lighter, mm-hmm. and uh, so it would hold up. Because that was the problem. The biggest guys were busting those old Schwinn frames, et cetera, till they, you know, many of them had broken multiple times. And they're coming to me saying, hey, Joe, because I was building custom road racing frames, right? Mm-hmm. They're coming to me saying, hey, Joe, when are you going to build me a new frame? And, yeah, <laughs> hey, now you want me to get serious? Aren't we just having fun out here? <laughs> right. you know, it was my reaction, really. And really it was uh, Charlie Kelly who made me do it. Uh he was waving $300 in front of me and I figured well heck I could uh, buy 10 sets of tubing for that <laughs> and so I said I'll make 10 and I drew them up very carefully and and that's when I did those first breezer frames.
1: Yeah. I mean to me that's pretty incredible. I I talked to
0: 1977 was the year.
1: Yeah, I actually asked Charlie that same question, you know, about you know, why was he so serious about getting this bike made? I mean that seems unusual. Um, and expensive to have a custom bike built
0: because he was a a big guy busting those old mild steel frames that's why
1: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i guess he really wanted to win so like you said you went on to build 10 more of those first generation breezer bikes yeah were those all custom orders for riders that you knew or were they bikes you're kind of just building hoping somebody would be interested in them
0: so this was the deal. I, I said, "Okay, I'll make ten. They're all going to be the same, and they were mostly for the bigger guys anyway, because those are the guys mostly busting the frames." But I, I built them for mostly for the people racing at Repack, who you know knew what we you know knew that you could ride a bicycle off-road, mm-hmm. uh, and and wanted that uh, that secret weapon. And uh, there were there were people like Fred Wolf, who um, who founded the the Repack course back in the mid seventies. And uh, Wendy and Larry Cragg, the, the the couple that uh, you know had Nikon's with them, who really chronicled the birth of the sport. We're so grateful to them for keeping that that history alive, showing our plaid shirts and and Levi's et cetera, denim shirts. <laughs> and and my good friend Otis Guy uh, was one. And and then, but there were others who I didn't know so well. Uh, wh- one of the first owners of those first print ten breezers uh, was Fritz Maytag. Who is the guy who kind of kickstarted the um, the microbrew movement in in this country back in the 1960s when he he bought uh, Anchor Steam Brewing Company and he lived in Mill Valley where where I lived and and knew my uh, my older brother and and um, bought one of my first breezers. Wow! And that, well, of course, the first one went to Charlie Kelly. Because he was the guy who fronted me the money for those <laughs> ten frames, so right. of course yeah he, so he has breezer number two, uh, which is actually the the first uh, essentially the first modern mountain bike ever sold, and that 's on display at our museum
1: yeah that 's awesome i 'm really fascinated too, you know, you just mentioned uh, Fritz, right, who uh, started the craft brewing industry essentially here in the US. Um, I was going to ask you about that, the culture of mountain biking and, and how, I mean, it's really interesting to me today that you see riders wearing a lot of flannel, you know, that's still a popular thing. It definitely sets us apart from road riders and then the craft beer connection too. Uh, I'm just incredibly fascinated to know that, that there is a connection there as well.
0: Well, things go in cycles, and flannel, flannel might be on that track, but I think uh, beer and bikes are going to always go together somehow.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting.
0: Uh, uh, a tall, cool, and tastes pretty good after a long, hot day out on the trail.
1: Right, absolutely. So in 1978, you and Charlie Kelly and some others participated in the Pearl Pass Tour in Crested Butte, Colorado. What was that experience like coming from the budding mountain bike scene in the Bay Area?
0: Yeah, well, we, uh, Charlie, we, we were being interviewed by Coevolution Quarterly and it was a December of, would have been December of 77. And they told us about these guys in Crested Butte, Colorado doing the same darn thing, you know? And like I say, it wasn't anything new that we were doing. It's just that repack just projected it to the world with all the the 24 replay, the repack races that's that's you know repack was really the crucible of mountain biking but this thing in Crested butte yeah we went out there they they actually didn't think of, we were serious about it but there we do we're we're in september of 78 we showed up there were six of us from marin who showed up there including gary fisher and charlie kelly and wendy cragg and mike Costelli and yeah it was it, it What a beautiful place holy cow the aspens were turning just at their prime mm-hmm. came into town we just fell in love with the place just a, what a beautiful spot on the planet and then we approached those guys down at the grub steak saloon and they're like whoa these guys came out here <laughs> and i didn't think they were even going to do it the look on their face the the, the look of surprise and And they said, well, uh, is she doing it? Pointing to Wendy Craig. And Wendy said, oh, yeah, I'm doing it. And it's kind of like their machismo kicked in. And wow, yeah, and we're doing it too. So there were 13 (laughs) of us that went over Pearl Pass that year. Quite an an event, quite a spectacular time. Overnight up in Cumberland Basin at about 11,000 feet going over this, I don't know, almost 13,000 foot pass, Pearl Pass.
1: Yeah, wow. So were you riding clunkers at that time or did you have some of your breezer bikes?
0: well i had some of the my first breezers so this is september 78 and i had uh, all the all 10 of them were now built and and uh, so there were charlie had a breezer wendy had a breezer i had a breezer uh, i guess there were three breezers unless i'm forgetting somebody sorry but um anyway so we had those modern bikes and it's kind of interesting we we're out in front of the Grub Steak saloon and they look those The uh, guys, you know, the Buchans are looking at it at at our new, uh, our new. Well, you can't call them clunkers anymore. Our our new machines, Mm -hmm. and they're saying, "Well, what are they made out of?" And I said, "Oh, it's uh, chromium molybdenum steel." (laughs) And well, actually, I said chromoly steel, and they said "moly," like (laughs) in as in molybdenum. And I said, "Well, yeah." And they said, "Well, you see that mountain up yonder?" That's that mountain there, AMAX wants to mine for molybdenum. (laughs) And so they weren't so keen on the idea, actually. And I said, Well, these bikes have such a very small amount of
1: molybdenum in
0: it. Right. (laughs) And they kind of said, Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. But uh, true fact.
1: Yeah. Well, was that sort of one of the big first tests of how well the bikes climbed? I mean, was that different coming to Colorado from California? Uh, were the climbs bigger or was it was it any different from what you guys were used to?
0: You know, they claimed us of cheating. <laughs> Not only did we have the latest in mountain bike uh, technology, but uh, but we trained. <laughs> I think it might have been a little more training down at the Grub Stake. Uh and so when Race State came, yeah, yeah, we we uh well they liked us cuz cause, cause we were also bike mechanics too and we knew a few things about how to keep a bike together. So We kept their bikes going. They kept us in in stitches with their entertaining ways up at Cumberland Basin and all. And we just had a great time. We were just like two beans in a pod there and two peas in a pod or or 13 in a pod and and, uh, just having a wonderful time um, making our trek over Pearl Pass to to Aspen.
1: Yeah, that's cool. It sounds like you found kindred spirits in the mountain bikers there. And and that's just really fascinating, too, that that this was happening at the same time sort of independently and
0: absolutely and and the association between uh marin county and and uh crested butte is long of course that's where they founded the mountain bike hall of fame way back in in 1988 and this will be our 30th induction that we have this year in fact at the Marin museum of bicycling and mountain bike hall of fame
1: yeah yeah that's really cool. So, how did the mountain bike designs progress in those early days? Were there a lot of big changes from one generation to the next, or was it more gradual?
0: Well, I, I suppose, and and um, it's uh, competition really has a way of improving the breed, hmm. and there is no stranger to our our doings with these mountain bikes. Neither just well, I mean, this doesn't sound like any great shakes, but those first bikes i made had a 68 degree head angle or so and and the next ones i would make by 1980 would have a a a 70 degree head angle and that that whole geometry geometry thing would be a big talking point in Mm -hmm. in mountain bikes for years but but so many things were, were changing over the years better lighter rims better tires and and uh and really the the mountain bike racing was improving the bikes yeah
1: yeah, that's interesting. You you mentioned earlier too that those Schwinn's had what a sixty eight degree head tube angle.
0: Yeah, sixty seven and a half for the for the what we called the Excelsior. Those pre war uh, Schwinn ballooners.
1: Huh. And I mean today's bikes, you know, sixty seven and a half degree head tube angle. That's your you know typical trail bike.
0: Like I to say, things things go in cycles, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are reasons for that, of course. And, and, uh, maybe, uh, we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk more about that down the road here. Maybe.
1: Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Joe's design for the first dropper post and where mountain bike technology is headed today. Stay tuned. Evo seeks to deliver the ultimate shopping experience for mountain bikers. Check out their deep library of guides to everything mountain biking on evo.com slash guides or reach out to their dedicated team of customer care experts available by phone, online chat, and email. Unlike some other internet retailers, Evo bridges the gap between online and in-store with their three store locations, offering free shipping to stores and community events throughout the year. Shop at Evo for mountain bike gear and bikes from top brands like Davinci, Evil, Santa Cruz, Transition and Yeti and take advantage of their price match guarantee. Use coupon code singletracks online at evo.com or in Evo store locations to get 10% off your next order. That's Evo, evo.com. So, Joe, what was it like running the Breezer Bike brand for nearly three decades? You know you started out as kind of a one man shop and you know grew into a multinational corporation. Were there challenges or perks that you found sort of along the way?
0: Well, certainly challenges my My Ford is more designed than than uh running a company really mm-hmm. building bikes I love perks absolutely. Boy, riding a bike it's a perk every day every day it's like i just learned how to ride a bike i i just love bikes always will but along the way you know after building those those frames in the 80s you know i'm the guy welding it together welding these frames together and and uh, maybe not the the fastest uh, uh, bike builder in the world i i'm so focused on other ideas like uh, coming up with parts my my good buddy Josh Angel for instance uh was one of those guys what well, you mentioned earlier the high rate right? but but anyhow, so I'm, uh, I'm looking for ways to get more frames out there. And I partnered with a company in, in St. Saint Cloud, Saint Cloud, Minnesota, in uh, the mid-1980s. And we were doing uh, a bike of my design called the American Breezer. It was part of their line, and they were handling the sales to shops, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a, that was a model I would uh, use uh, for a number of years doing the Breezers. For instance – just after that, I got together with uh, interjet uh the international company uh and they were selling breezers around the world uh, my designs uh I would be you know telling everybody how to weld frames together, et cetera but other people actually making the frames. And and, uh, those are the, maybe for those who have breezers, uh, these are with the the spear point paint jobs like the old Schwinn's used to have Mm. that I borrowed, uh, that I lifted from those early (laughs) 1930s, 40s Schwinn's with those two-tone spear point paint job. And that was all during the 90s, mostly. I was doing that project. And then after that, I actually really, since for the first time since I had been welding the frames together, I was running the show uh, with a, uh, another guy this was in the in the 2000s we started uh my buddy uh, my friend uh John Deutsch and I started uh repurpose breezer actually uh, an interest of mine Uh, is uh, the use of bicycles for transportation again something I got from my father perhaps but Mm -hmm. I figured hey you know everybody's doing mountain bikes and wouldn't it be wonderful if people had a a bicycle that was uh, all equipped uh, that they could use to get down to the store as many people were doing with their mountain bikes in fact I mean uh, most of the mountain bikes that were sold maybe 90 percent of them Rarely saw the dirt. And they were just upright, uh, comfortable bikes to ride. And people learned that, wow, you know, right in my everyday life, I can use a bicycle to get where I need to go and, self, save, and save myself time. How about that? Yeah. And and get myself a little healthier, too, and maybe the planet at the same time. And, and so, you know, I, I thought uh, what we need in this country are bikes that are fully equipped, so that have racks and fenders and lights right on them, like a car. You know, they've got all that stuff. And when you park them, they don't fall over and and so wouldn't it be great to just have a an all-purpose everyday getting around bike and that's what we did by uh john Deutsch and i uh repurposed breezer in in 2000 what was it 2000 well we got together in 2001 figured it was high time here in this country and and showed up at the show the following year with a with a line of town bikes and we focused 100 percent we did not do mountain bikes or road bikes because everybody else was doing that, mm-hmm. and we were really trying to get that thing going. We needed to focus 100% on this new kind of bike, and and got a, got a foothold uh, selling to people who started bike dealerships just for that one sole purpose, mm-hmm. to get bikes in front of people in ways that they can use them better, um, more easily in their life, and, and that's what um, we did and about what was it 2008 this was getting some traction and uh, a lot of companies were coming out with fully equipped bikes and and it was getting somewhere and i figured well you know we're just going to get trounced by everybody so i chose to partner with a a bigger company and that was advanced sports Mm -hmm. back in philadelphia and they um were the uh, essentially they're, they're the uh, uh company that was building the fuji bicycles and the kestrel bicycles and se bicycles and a number of brands now including breezer from 2008 and i was held on as a uh, designer the part i like and they <laughs> got to do all that fun paperwork back there in philadelphia and, and move my bikes around the planet so um yeah, and and so, yeah, I've had these different models over the years, and that's where we are now, uh, still uh, doing uh, transportation for a healthy planet, but with a little bit more horsepower. We're we're uh, doing mountain bikes. I've been doing mountain bikes again since ni- 2010, and uh, some road bikes like uh, new gravel bikes, adventure bikes, uh, for something in between road biking and mountain biking, which is, seems to be really catching on right now.
1: Yeah. Definitely. And like you said, these things do seem to go in cycles where <laughs> where one thing is hot for a while and then it dies down a little bit and then it comes back. A lot of riders might not know this, but you actually developed the first dropper seat post, the height right, in the early 1980s. Why do you think it took so long for this to become such a must-have accessory for mountain bikers?
0: Yeah, yeah. Josh and I came up with that. Josh Angel and I came up with that in nineteen. Uh eighty four or three something like that, we' got a patent on it, and um yeah why why do you 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 make it sound like it was never a big deal actually <laughs> back when that when we started that thing, my gosh, it's like we oh I forget how many distributors I had, but they were on all the top bikes uh made at that time as original equipment oh wow and and uh even before nineteen ninety we had sold uh over a quarter million of those height rights you know uh wow. started with our uh advertising our our, our slogan descend with conviction <laughs> and the reason it essentially went away like you've noticed that you did notice was that early on well in 1990 something the the race promoters realized that hey if they made the instead of having these epic a to b a Point A to Point B races. If they could have a, a shorter loop, mm-hmm. then they could have better spectators, more spectators coming to their right. race, right? And and of course, once you shorten that lap, then there's less time to be bothering at lowering your your saddle. So the height rate kind of went uh, away for a while there. And it wasn't until more recently that people. Really brought back more fun into mountain biking as as uh, suspension got better and and you go further off road and and uh, having a really light bike for racing wasn't the the key thing anymore after the 1990s and and people started to focus on that fun end again and people came out with with uh dropper seat posts, even with a remote. I was working on a remote in 1990, when the whole thing went south, and then, wow, then people are coming back with this this height right thing again, wonderful. And um, yeah, actually, uh, we even had, I, I had a few left over from all the ones that we sold, and my son is now uh, cleaning up the closet, uh, selling them online, um, For people looking for a lower price seat dropper. Yeah, it's about one tenth the price of what today's seat droppers cost. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. What can you describe the design? I mean it's a really simple design.
0: It is it is so simple. I didn't think we could get a patent on it, but our patent attorney (laughs) said those are the very best kind, right? And anyway, it's a it's a simple torsion spring that you attach onto your seat post with a clamp and the lower leg fits. Oh Well, against a uh, – wraps around a quick-release skewer like all bikes used to have and some still do have. And um, uh, then you just – as you're riding along on the fly, you reach back and undo that quick-release lever and controllably lower your saddle to where you want it for that gnarly downhill. And once you're back on to terra firmer – flatter ground you can just reach down and pop it right back up to your efficient pedaling height and it keeps it straight with this with the frame and off you go it's like nothing ever happened and so like i said sold a lot of those things and and it's it's a way to have fun on a mountain bike for sure. You cannot sell a mountain bike today if, if it doesn't have a dropper seat post, it seems sometimes. Very unlike pedals. Bikes can Mountain bikes can come without pedals because a lot of people have directions they want to go in for their personal pedal. But man, it doesn't have a dropper seat post. Holy cow.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, this just further highlights that trend of just everything being so cyclical in the industry and
0: Yeah, I don't know if that will be a cycle. I think that's here to stay. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. so. It's a fun thing. Well, as long as fun stays around, we'll have a dropper seat post.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. You co-founded and are the curator of the Marin Museum of Bicycling in Fairfax, California, which seems really fitting given your early interest in bicycle history. What does it feel like, though, to have some of your own creations, like the early Breezer bikes, in international museum collections, like the Smithsonian?
0: Oh my gosh, yeah, that's whew. well, that's to have a anything in the Smithsonian. That's an honor <laughs> for sure for me. Well, cow, I was just blown away. I, I finally made it out there to see it uh, in the uh, American History Museum. There. Are, off Constitution Avenue on the Washington Mall. Oh, cool! Uh, finally, finally saw it sitting there, and all its uh, beautiful blue glory. Uh, hadn't ridden it since about 1980 or so, <laughs> but but there, but there it will sit forever. So yeah, it's quite quite an honor, and and uh, yeah, the whole you know, like who would have thought this? Like like we were talking about earlier, like to to think that our, our little fun in the woods. Uh, would grow up into essentially the ubiquitous bike on the planet. You know, a fat tire bike all around the world is that bike. Yeah. Uh, that that's uh, the go-to bike uh, for everything, right? Not of course not just mountain bike, but just getting getting across to wherever in the in the world, uh, the the jungle or some city and in, in any big city in the world. So, yeah, and it's something that you just can't see coming. I mean, yeah, you can think, you know, my friends are enjoying this. You can kind of see it coming. But you don't know how big it's going to get, and and what I tell people is, if you're sitting around, a, a, imagine us back in the early '70s, sitting around a campfire, jawing, uh, roasting <laughs> marshmallows, whatever, mm-hmm. talking to our friends about where this bicycle someday might go, you know. And if you gave any inkling, you know, if you, hey, this bike is going to be well, like like it is today. Uh-huh. They would lock you up. Right. I mean, there, there has been so much essentially chaos along the way that things that you never saw coming that have pointed to this bicycle as, as something you want to do. That was just, it's, it's, things are not obvious until they're obvious <laughs> and, and this is no exception. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's come a long ways. It's, it's just amazing that, uh, people would care this much about something we were just having fun in on at out in the woods, um, 40-some-odd years ago.
1: Yeah. Well, when you were younger, too, and you were interested in these older bikes and uh, some of the historical aspects of bicycling, did you follow sort of the inventors? I mean, did you ever see yourself as as one of those people? Could you see yourself in the shoes of, you know, say, the guy who invented the penny farthing?
0: Not back then, for sure. And, and, you know, I I had... It's a funny thing about that museum uh, because Mark Vendetti... Otis Guy and I, back in the 1970s, were hoping to do just that museum back then, and huh. to, to really, you know, to, before the mountain bike, right? Yeah. And and we really wanted to show those bikes from the 19th century that made the bicycle happen. You know, the bicycle was formed in the 30 some odd years between 1865 and and, and 1895. And it were, and competition competition absolutely improved the breed right up to the point there were other ways to get around, like the automobile. And it was the very same people who would go on to start a lot of the bi- motor motoring uh, automobile companies. And, mm-hmm. and heck, the Wright brothers were bike builders before flying at Kitty Hawk, right? And 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 so this is what we wanted to share this fabulous history about the bicycle and its important role in all of industry. Did you know that the ball bearing was perfected with the bicycle? You know, wow. we have a bicycle in the museum that has the very bearing on it from Daniel Rudge, which is considered the great granddaddy of all ball bearings <laughs> in the industry today. Wow. You know, for instance, uh, and there are many more, but believe me. And, and so we wanted to share this history that it had been in, it occluded by these later technologies like the automobile and the airplane. It's a it's a history that people don't know. And when they come in, it's like, well, I had no idea. So anyway, we're hoping to we were hoping to do that. And and then we'd finally do this museum many, many years later, right? Forty years later, and and that we are now part of that history. That's the strange part. You know, and and yes, I, I I thought highly of Daniel Rudge, and I thought highly of Hans Reynolds, who gave us our bush roller and chain, the the most efficient method of transmitting power known still today, and and the the same technology that we propel our bikes with today that that chain's no different, and and you know that that we are part of this history. It's really strange. When I'm showing people around, I'm really. Digging, showing them that 1890s history, but when it comes to the mountain bike, I, it's like I would almost like to talk in the third person. I like I wasn't even there, but now I'm part of that history. So I'm, I, it's nice. I can give people that firsthand uh, knowledge of what we did way back when. But it's a little strange. Let me tell you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, I know you don't want to toot your own horn, and yeah, it's that's probably it's probably a little weird. But I mean, how would you place the mountain bike? on that historical timeline. I mean how how big of an inflection point was that compared to say the height of, of bicycling before that, you know, the eighteen nineties?
0: Yeah. Well it- it was a pretty amazing time back in the 1890s this golden age of cycling where it was the, the darling of transportation culture or more than that it was in all the popular magazines uh, thousands of stories and of course in all the uh, the uh, scientific journals like scientific american you know the latest technologies coming from bicycles just about half the uh, patents in 1895 were about the bicycle wow okay there was where you went to get your bike to get your idea patented, there was a building for bicycle patents and there was a building for everything else. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. That's how, that's how huge it was. Uh, and, and yeah, it was the, the, the center of culture. I mean, it was that golden age. So, okay. So how to compare that to the mountain bike? Well, okay. So the mountain bike's been around for over 40 years now, and, uh, it's really changed a lot with how we get around in life. And, and really it it gosh, it's a crazy nutty thing, but it even seems to have even rejuvenated the idea of using a bicycle for transportation, not even in our country, but in Europe, hmm. in Amsterdam, in Germany. Bicycles the mountain bike brought new blood to cycling and opened up invigorated the sport and inspired whole new generations oh. to enjoy the the beauty of a bicycle and how you know it's the most efficient vehicle ever devised you know yeah. and and that's that's really you know, as, as dry as that might sound, the most efficient vehicle ever devised, <laughs> that's what puts the smile on our face when we ride a bike. And we are just astounded with how we're able to propel that thing down the road and down the trail and fly down the hill and and do all those amazing things. And that's, that's what the mountain bike did around the world was uh, reinvigorate cycling so that many people could use a bicycle to do something as simple to go down to the store and buy a quart of milk. And, and incorporate it right into their lives so they could get health while they get where they go. And so anyhow, uh, it's, it's, it's been a, a pretty amazing ride, and and, uh, and I hope it keeps on going.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's really amazing to think about sort of that first boom and, and then this second boom. There are some similarities, but yeah, like you said, it's, it's really different. I guess, in in the way that those things have moved forward. One of the tenets that you advocated for when forming NORBA, which was the North American Off-Road Bicycling Association, was self-sufficiency, particularly when it comes to riders and their equipment. So I wanted to ask you, how do you think electric mountain bikes fit into all this in terms of self-sufficiency or, you know, getting out on trails with an electric motor?
0: Yeah, Sure. I, I, I think it, it uh, correlates well. And, and the self-sufficiency I was aiming for, I was hoping to not develop a freak bike okay. through racing, which kind of happened with road bikes, you know. it's uh, The UCI, many years, decades back, chose a path of making the athlete the star of the show, mm-hmm. uh, where before that, when bikes meant something, beforehand in the in the 19th century uh that technology was part of the star of the show yeah. and and now instead of the focus being on the technology it's been on the athlete to the detriment of growth in cycling and that's why a bike from the uh 1890s uh, in profile doesn't look a whole lot different from uh the Chris Froome's bike that he won the Tour de France on last year and it's not I mean, certainly, there are updates to it, but in basic profile, it's the same diamond shaped frame with mm-hmm. those two pneumatic wheels about the same diameter and it and it's because the rule book states that that's what a bike must look like hmm. that to be legal to race as a machine, and that's easy marketing for the builder because you know you built what won the race on yesterday, right, so as bicycles once again are being seen as a solution in our everyday life to get transportation. Brighter people are coming back into the industry. And it could be that – well, and I should tell you about something else that's happened. The UCI has once again uh, hinted that they're interested in giving back to humanity a better bicycle developed through racing – And wouldn't that be a great thing that people go, yeah, when I got my quart of milk, those racing bikes gave me a better bicycle. Okay. (laughs) No, and and there's so many things that can be improved on a bicycle that by having wheel changes, that just creates uh, uh, not a good wheel, not a good tire, right? Right. Uh, Boy, you can bet if if you had to finish that Tour de France race on that same uh, bike that you started on (laughs) uh, and you might even have to change your own tires, holy cow – uh, you bet the manufacturers would make a damn good tire, and we'd all be the benef- we'd all be the beneficiaries of that new tech, that new improved technology. So the UCI is getting smart with the game and realizing that they can have a great impact on society in a very positive way by improving, by changing the rules a little bit in the racing. Plan to uh, make bicycles more self-sufficient. That's what I was shooting for with mountain bikes—not to develop a freak bike like a road bike, mm-hmm. a road racing bike is today, and and come up with a bike that will not only get you into the woods but back out of the woods. Right. Okay. And and so so whether it's a, a pedal powered bike or a pedal powered e bike, if if there are to be rules. They should be rules that will not only get you into the woods, but back out of the woods. And so that's why I say that it's 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 a similar thinking uh, for either bike.
1: Yeah, that's really that's really fascinating to think about the difference between road bikes and mountain bikes, and maybe what's driving some of that innovation and that risk taking. I guess with design and you know yeah. figuring out ways to solve the problems that competition brings up
0: yeah and and a comp- competition is a vital in- tool to improve the bicycle and uh, the UCI and all all people involved need to uh, get with that uh, plan and and recognize that that's what's going to keep people coming back to bicycles day after day a bicycles that's useful to them that works well that uh, is trouble free that's that's our goal and that's what's going to keep us uh, uh, not only getting into the woods, but back out of the woods for whatever we use a bicycle for, and that will will make that uh, a bicycle more and more beautiful as we go down the road.
1: Would you say are the UCI mountain bike regulations are they different, or and are are they sort of modeled after the Norba uh, rules as they were?
0: Well, of course, uh, we Norba was uh, separate from the UCI until uh, 1989. And uh, it's an interesting thing. Maybe it might sound a little ironic that the UCI, because they wanted to, uh, bring our Norba into the fold, uh, to have a unified world championship. And you can imagine how chuffed we were that our little (laughs) baby was going to be international. Well, they actually just that one thing that the UCI did, which did come about Kind of interesting story how it did come about, but anyway, that one ruling from the UCI infused. Man, I, I just got to tell you the story, I guess. But so the I should tell you the the um, the Italian bike Federation, when the UCI brought that up, they said, "Wait a minute, not so fast. You guys, us at Norba, don't even have downhill racing, and in <laughs> fact, we did not at that time, even though." that's our roots right right when we founded norba back in 1983 uh we were also the um the trail advocacy group we were trying to save our trails and the last thing we wanted to do uh was sanction downhill races because of the political blowback right and uh so we chose not to and so in 89 when the italians said no downhill no dice we at norba uh knew that downhilling was going to happen with or without us. so we just shrugged our shoulders and said okay and that first uh, uh, world championship was uh, with that rainbow jersey, you know, the, the the rainbow jersey on white, was at Durango, Colorado, 1990. Ned Overend won it. And uh, it included the discipline of downhill racing. And that brought downhilling back with a vengeance. And that's what infused all this technology into mountain biking with better suspension, better kinematics, which carries on to this day yeah. to make the – the mountain bike more exciting, more better every year. You know, after 1990, when it was in the UCI's hands, and they ran with it, and we kind of had our indelible fingerprint on there for a while. But I think after uh, some time, they tro- chose to rescind the self-sufficiency clause, and maybe allow for wheel changes. I actually hadn't haven't paid toad close enough attention to you to actually know what those rules are like regarding mountain bike racing.
1: Well, in a downhill race, there's just not a lot of time anyway.
0: Well, yeah. Well, hey, I'll tell you what was happening before we founded Norba. The, the mountain bike racing was kind of devolving into cyclocross because for some of these courses that the promoters would put on, you could get by with a cyclocross bike, and hey, it was lighter, right? Right. But it wasn't really mountain biking anymore, and so it wasn't going to be developing a better bike for the people who enjoyed mountain biking. So by by going away from that uh, rule, they run that risk of making a freak bike out of mountain bikes, <laughs> and and so you know I, I think they they'd have their heads screwed on straight there at the UCI, and they'll do the right thing to uh, continue on with the uh, with what's obviously. Uh, uh, boons of the sport.
1: Well, Joe, thank you so much for talking with us about mountain biking history and about the history of the bike. Clearly you're really passionate about it and you're one of the people that founded the whole sport. And so it's just really awesome to be able to talk to you about mountain biking.
0: Well, you're welcome, Jeff. Thank you very much. Uh, Wonderful questions of yours. Uh, Really had a good time.
1: Thanks. Well, you can learn more about the history of bikes and bicycle technology by visiting the Marin Museum of Bicycling in person or online. Also, be sure to check out the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, co-located with the Marin Museum in Fairfax, California. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend or post a quick review in your podcast app. Stay tuned for more great interviews. Peace.